You're tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Kahn. Today's my guest is somebody I've been wanting to talk to for a very long time. Welcome, Steve Muth, founder and president of VoiceThread, the collaborative web tool used by educators and professionals globally. He's also a former paramedic and the founder and chairman of NYC Medics. Steve, welcome to Tidings and welcome to WPKN. I'm just really happy to have your voice on my headphones right now. So could you tell our audience, what is your own background, technology, and and I guess a medical background? Well, there's actually not much of a technical background. It all begins with being a paramedic, one of my first jobs out of high school. So that's where most of my formative work experience happened, was being a paramedic in New York City. So this is late 80s, 90s, early aughts. Became a paramedic and started working in Manhattan, first downtown in the St. Vincent's area, which is the West Village for the most part, but really all up downtown. And then later on moved up to West side of Midtown, St. Clair's Hospital. So you were employed by one of these medical organizations then? Yes. The New York City has a strange setup where it's sort of an amalgam of different services that come together to provide 911 services, which makes it an odd outlier nationally. And that's just because it's been around for so long. So it grew up in a sort of odd way. So you have this amalgamation of hospitals and fire department, both putting out ambulances into the 911 system to respond to calls. So I almost exclusively worked for those hospitals. So first St. Vincent's and then St. Clair's. Why did you want to be a paramedic? Everybody has sort of like a founding story. Everyone comes to it in a different way. So early on, right out of high school, when I did some hiking out West, I had some run-ins with some EMTs doing work. So some emergency medical technicians. And I was impressed by what they did. And I thought that looks interesting. So I looked into it. And then once you look into it, you know, it's like putting your toe in a raging stream. You get taken away by it. And then you start following down that path. Once you're an EMT, what you really want to be is a paramedic. You look up to them. And so that's what started me down that path. And then once you become a medic, it's one of those difficult jobs The pay isn't particularly good. The benefits aren't particularly good, but it has some things to recommend it for a certain personality type. You're given a lot of power, autonomy, freedom, and ability to impact people's lives very close up. So that's enticing to a lot of people. Once you have it, it's like a bug. It's hard to get rid of. Having said that, it's also an incredibly demanding job. And so There's not a lot of longevity. I do know people who still do it, and there are the occasional people who can pull off an entire career doing it, but that's really hard to do because it's uh, quite destructive to your body and to your mind. So I would recommend it for all young people, but I, I would not recommend it for older people. And you then stopped being a paramedic the way you're talking. Yes. I got lucky in that I had a hobby on the side. I'm sort of like a closet engineer inventor. So I would do that kind of thing for fun on the side and between calls. And so I made a bunch of different inventions, but wasn't able to make money licensing any of them, but then finally did get lucky and licensed one to a toy company out West. And the toy just happened to be a big hit. And so I started getting these royalty checks, which allowed me to quit being a paramedic, which was a happy day and do that inventing full-time. So that's the precursor to my work at VoiceThread, where it's really just an idea. And I got used to this workflow of 
developing an idea because it's it's probably similar to writing a book or something like that where it's a multi-year endeavor and you start off in one place but you slowly have to develop it and that's a process I, I learned about that and that gave me the skill set to transfer that to a technology idea even though I'm don't have a particularly deep technology background I don't have a computer science degree or anything like it but still you invented it yeah, I'm an inventor, so and I feel like most people are actually. So I'm a big believer in the power of ideas, but at the same time, without implementation, without doing all of the hard work of really honing and iterating and developing, if you don't do those things, then ideas aren't really worth that much at mm -hmm. all. Most of the world's best ideas sit on a shelf unused, right? They're still You're great right, ideas, yeah. Yeah. but they're not implemented. So it's not enough just for an idea to be a good idea. It's actually not that impressive. I don't mean to be <laughs> depressing about it, but, but that's just the truth. Like we all have great ideas, but very few of them are going to get made into something in the real world. To get back to then NYC Medics, which is yeah. what we're actually going to be talking about. Is that also an idea that but I can't really make any claims on that being my idea whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Really, all I did was say yes when someone called me. So this was roughly six months, nine months. It was within the year of the Katrina response disaster. It was a funny time in America in particular where the poor showing that the United States did in responding to a disaster, a catastrophe that was on our own turf, really brought into question everybody's feeling about big institutions and their ability to respond to big events. So when there was that first earthquake in Pakistan in 2005, we all had the same feeling like, oh, here we go again. We know it's a remote area, it's hard to get to. And so it's very likely that these big institutions are not going to respond quickly enough. And we as paramedics knew that that's not the whole battle, but for a subset of patients, it is the whole battle. They don't have time. That's the one thing they don't have is time. So we did not know what we were doing, but somebody had the idea, why don't we go? Because as New York City paramedics in particular, one of our skill sets is dealing with diverse populations in really diverse environments and really working with very little and that's the perfect skill set for a post-catastrophe environment. The definition of, or at least our definition of a disaster versus a catastrophe is a, a catastrophe is when there's a breakdown of the local infrastructure to respond. Now, sometimes there never was any, right? So uh, you could point to places like Yemen and some other places where there really isn't any. So for them, most disasters become catastrophes because the people there, there is no 911. There is no support services of any kind. But for us, the definition is there's a total breakdown. No one is showing up. And it's in those spaces where really small interventions can have really rather dramatic impacts. Mm -hmm. That's where we've seen this over and over and over again, where we get to a, a rural or underserved area and people are dying of really simple things, you know, simple infections, you know, something that, uh, you know, $2 worth of antibiotics will literally save a life or a little IV fluid at the right time when they're dehydrated, things like that. 
These are not Western medicine's big guns. They look like little guns. They're not particularly sophisticated, but in those environments, they are absolutely life-changing and life-saving. So our idea as paramedics, because it mirrors, frankly, what we do here, even in the States, is it's called pre-hospital care, where you take the hospital care to the patient. You don't wait for the patient to come to you. And that's what was revolutionary about pre-hospital care to begin with. And we just took that model and then applied it to disaster response and said, our job is to get there. We're not going to ask them to come to a regional hospital in order to get care. We're going to go as far as we can to get as close as we can, as quick as we can to the patients. We didn't know what we were doing. We were Mm -hmm. applying what we knew in the field of pre-hospital care in the United States and saying, hey, there's a principle here. There's a skill set here that might be useful in disaster response. We didn't know that it would work. We just went. And that was the first time. So that was 2005. All the time I've been wanting to ask you, who is we? Talk about the actual nucleus. We have a a little nickname for ourselves called Knuckleheads because on the face of it, it wasn't the brightest idea to take off without a plan and show up in a disaster zone. And I, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone today to do. I think the reason why we were able to pull it off was we did actually have a pretty deep skill set of talent. These were not newbie weekend warriors. These were people with 15 years of experience mm. working in New York City. It was mostly paramedics, a couple of doctors, maybe a PA or two, a group of people who basically all just said, yes, I'll go without really knowing entirely what this was going to all be about. They just wanted to help and They didn't trust that the big organizations were going to be able to provide that help. You all knew each other. You'd work together. Yeah, it was sort of a telephone chain. So Mm -hmm. someone called me. I said, yes. They Mm -hmm. then called somebody else and they said, yes. So we had two teams, 15 people, something like that, 16 people, maybe. And equipment, equipment, you had a medicine. How did you get those? Not easily. Beg, borrow, and steal to get our bags filled with whatever supplies that we could get our hands on. And then we just brought it with us. It worked. That's the thing. That first mission set it all off because, you know, we didn't know. It was just an attempt. Like you want to help, but you don't know if you're going to be effective. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be incredibly effective. In New York City, if you get to have a life-saving impact on somebody's life once or twice a year, that's considered great. We were doing that hourly, dozens of people over and over and over again. So it was crazy how effective it was. I'm one of these people who gets obsessed with having to know everything that happens. <laughs> good. So, which is can be really, really annoying <laughs> to other people. But good um, as a journalist, but, that's for sure. So 15 or 16 people in New yep. York City, how yep. did it become something? Well, again, we didn't know what we're doing, but since then we have followed the same model I'm about to explain to you, and it's worked every time. There will always be a regional response center, and usually it's a logistics hub. So very often it's an airport, right? We know that international aid will be flying into Islamabad. So we fly into Islamabad. We find whoever is in charge of the logistics of that airport. And very often turns out to be an American. In Pakistan, there was a huge U.S. military response. They very quickly set up their own airport within an airport. You find the people in charge and you make yourselves available to them. If you really want to get in somebody's 
good graces solve a problem for them, mm. right? So you find out what their problem is. They told us almost immediately they were dropping off aid, but these villages, they said they would get mobbed by people asking for medical attention. Their soldiers say they don't know how to do that. So we said to them, if you take us, we'll do the medical aid. You drop us off either for a few hours or overnight and we'll render the care. And then you pick us up the next day. So that's how we ended up getting a ride deep into the mountains where they were completely inaccessible by any other means. We rode on American helicopters. So the logistics of getting us and our stuff where it needed to go that was the Americans. But sometimes it will be the local military. That is what ended up happening in Pakistan, where the disaster was a militarized zone. So the army ran things anyway. And so we then had to start working with them. By the way, they were fantastic. It's probably like a lot of armies, particularly at the lower, you know, enlisted men and slightly above. They were really hard workers. They helped carry our stuff. They guarded us. They were pretty fantastic overall. They were very happy to see you, that's for sure. Yeah, see that model of you solve a problem for somebody else and they'll help you. They didn't have the capacity to care for all these people. Mm-hmm. Just to remind people, you were responding yes. to the 2005 earthquake in Pakistan, in the mountains there. Yep. And then how long did you stay? I think it was about two weeks on that mm-hmm. first. It depends on conditions on the ground. So our model, which now we have kind of perfected, is to find a gap in the response. And there are always gaps because the need is never met immediately, right? We have to find out where is that gap? both geographically, but then also, what is it? What's the requirement here? What need is not being met? And then we just simply ask ourselves, is that a good fit for us? Because we have our own skill set. This ability to work in very chaotic environments with no infrastructure is not something that everybody has. So bigger organizations tend not to do this very well. Steve Muth is talking about NYC medics and the team's emergency response to international disasters. This is Hazel Kahn with Tidings on WPKN Radio. They do other things really well. They set up regional hospitals and will serve so many people. But what they're pretty terrible at is moving at the speed required to get to the people they need to get to in the time those people need it. That they're not so great at. They're going to take a long time to get there. And so we find the gap. We then respond to the gap. On your website, you talk about your model. Use the phrase, I just disaster response paradigm upside down. And you say first is remote communities by small ultralight emergency medical teams. If the crisis continues, you scale up. There's another Mm. sort of metaphor where instead of, you know, serving the front of the line, we immediately go and look and say somewhere in the back of the line there, there's some people who are really desperate and they can't wait. And that's something, again, that paramedics do all the time in a multiple casualty incident. Mm-hmm. It's called triage, where you're you're trying to find the ones as quickly as possible that need the intervention as quickly as possible so that you know, you're know you not at the front of the line bandaging people's arms while at the back of the line, someone is literally bleeding to death because of a simple wound that could be addressed. But I'm still fixated on 2005 in Pakistan. This is the first time you work together as a team, all of you. Are there any issues or any of that? (laughs) There were lots of issues. Talk about that. (laughs) First off, it's hard to overstate just how chaotic the environment is. It takes a pretty special person who is capable of remaining calm 
and being rational in the face of real danger and a tremendous absence of information because that's the nature of a post-catastrophe environment. So you're having to make decisions about, do we send a team up to this village here? Because two people who came into the clinic yesterday reported that this village of 5,000 people was decimated and no one has been there. So are you going to believe those two people? Is it safe? You don't know. And so you have to be pretty calm, accepting of the risks, and just try to do the best job you can in that environment. And that's not for everybody. It's normal to have fights and bickering and all that kind of thing, because it's just such a stressful environment. But the best people are able to do it in a really constructive way. And so we've developed a pretty amazing team of responders who are really good at that kind of thing. And then leaders emerge. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And also doing all of this without knowing the language. But again, that background, particularly as a New York City health, you're used to there's some, you know, 50 languages that you might run into working as a paramedic in New York City. So you're used to rendering healthcare in a setting where you don't know the language. It's very difficult. But then you work with the body language, which is you know almost worldwide. There's right. variations, but you'd be surprised how well you can sometimes communicate with people, even with a language barrier. When it was over, some people might have said to themselves, never going to do that one again. Most stuck around because it was so remarkably successful from a, a, a personal impact. And so you did do it again, over and over again. Can yeah. You, I have a list in front of me. The other places you went, I know, for example, that you went back to Pakistan, where there was another earthquake the next yeah. year. Haiti was probably another big one because it was such a monstrous response and it was fairly close to home for us, at least. Pakistan, Vanuatu, the Caribbean a couple of times for hurricane responses. And again, the model we're always looking at right after the disaster hits, we scan the map and media looking for the dark spots, the places where there's not a lot of news coming from them. We look for the shadows because it's in those shadows that it's likely we're going to find our people, the people that we can help that other people can't. It's the same model applied everywhere. And, and I'll give you an outlier, which is in Japan, the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear disaster, there is probably no more prepared country on the planet mm. for disaster like that. But it was a monstrous event. But there was not one single medical disaster response team sent from anywhere in the world to Japan because Japan said to everyone they didn't need our standard response of a mobile medical team. They had that covered. But we asked the follow-up question, do you have everything you need? Is there no gap? Our assessment team found it was the response to the nuclear event. Because those are so rare, the skill set for responding to them is so rare on our planet. And so the number of experts on our planet, it's a very small number. Mm -hmm. And so Japan didn't have them. They'd never had one of these before. So they communicated to us that that was a need that they would like to get filled. And they had already asked through standard channels like the U.S. State Department and places like that. But those channels take too long. So it took us about 24 hours to identify a group of maybe 20 people on the planet who were world-renowned experts in radiological disaster response with real experience. Found a group of four of them who we could get on a plane within 48 hours. And that's what we did. We sent a team of these outside experts over. They might have gotten there eventually, but we got them there quicker. And that was an example of taking a philosophy of listen, you know, to find out what the gap is, let the local people tell you what that need is. 
And then just ask yourself the question, is there something you can do to help fill that gap quicker? We didn't know when we started looking around for nuclear you know, uh, experts that we were going to find a team willing, but you try. You you just say, let's make some phone calls and see what happens. You didn't have particular experience in was the typhoon in the Philippines. Yep, that's right. But if it's a catastrophe, it has a lot of remarkably similar environmental conditions, that total breakdown where there's nothing or very, very little, where we're taking an old school building that has no roof and we're turning it into a clinic in four mm. hours so we can set up and start treating people. That environment is remarkably similar, no matter how that happened. Just to go back to Pakistan, because, you know, my, my personal interest in that country, when they had these floods last year, yet again, I know you didn't go, but is yep. that something you'd have liked to have gone to? Definitely. But we have to be careful that we don't try to be something we're not. That was a disaster that affected a huge area, a huge number of people, and it really was best served by a huge and coordinated response rather than us shooting ahead and going to find some remote village. It was not a good fit for us. And that's why we didn't respond there. So there are two reasons why we don't respond. One is uh, something isn't a, a good fit for our particular skill set. And number two is just resources. We don't have the money. If you don't have the resources, then what do you do? I understand that, that you're in Yemen now. And that isn't exactly what you do. You're pre-hospital, not yeah. hospital. A situation where, in fact, resources did not come to you. Yeah. In fact, I didn't fully answer your question before about our palette of things that we do being training. Why we got interested in training is that if you do respond to these emergencies and you see the suffering, you have the sense that a lot of it is unnecessary. It was preventable. So either with better preparation infrastructure or better preparation of the response. So it immediately makes you think, I wish we could have arrived six months before this event and training people because then they would have been better prepared locally and a lot of suffering could have been avoided. Responding afterwards, it's just not nearly as good as responding beforehand. Prevention. Yeah, prevention, 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 yeah. right. All humanitarians, I think, get interested in the topic of prevention. And we have this remarkable experience and tool set that if you're going to set up a remote response somewhere, there's a good chance you'd probably want to talk to us. We've just done it successfully over and over and over again. It's much smarter to think about scaling that up and getting it out there into the world so that other people can do mm -hmm. it, not just this group from that's headquartered in New York City. It's another gap. Yeah. Those trained yeah. people don't exist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Our training programs are trying to do exactly that, to get those people prepared and trained to teach them a little of what we know so that they can just do a better job of responding to the event when it happens. And it's much faster because they're local. They will speak the language. It's cheaper. I mean, so many advantages to it. Even in these emergency situations, you've transferred some learning to the local people, but that was done in an emergency setting. Which is not as ideal. Yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's yeah. never as ideal. I know you did it in Gaza and Yemen. Was there anywhere else? Yemen had a number of components to it. Training was one of them. We actually did set up a 911 system, they didn't have one. There was no 911 number and there was no centralized dispatch or control organization at all. We set up that entire system and then we handed it off to the local people to run. That is remarkable. Is that what you did in Gaza as well? 
Yeah, but Gaza was more defined. We had a course that we were supposed to teach in person, but you know, COVID hit. So we did the first three quarters of it remote and online. And then once the restrictions were lifted, we were able to get back in and finish the course off. But yeah, what we were doing there is basically a disaster response training. There is a philosophical attitude that pre-hospital care providers have, which is the power of duct tape solutions. It's not pretty, but it can be life-saving and incredibly effective to come in and just solve a problem without taking years and spending millions of dollars. Interventions don't need to be monstrous. They can be much smaller. We kind of know that. That's what paramedics do. Um, You know how to be nimble. You are self-contained. I don't know how much accountability you owe to whoever funds you. We try to make sure that we always arrive fully self-sufficient. There's a lot of sort of cowboy organizations that don't do that. And if you don't know what you're doing, you really do make things worse. You don't bring your own food into an environment that is probably seriously food challenged. So you have a lot of money. So you buy that local food. Mm. The local people don't have any food to eat because Mm. you are eating their food. And Mm -hmm. you're causing massive inflation. So self-sufficiency is is critical. But then after that, you also need to make sure you know what you're doing and don't become a liability. That's the other thing. As a humanitarian organization, we are absolutely responsive to and adhere to the universal humanitarian guidelines like Mm -hmm. the UN sphere guidelines, right? Those apply to everybody. Those are non-negotiable. So we are accountable in that sense. We certainly don't work directly for, we sometimes get funding from big organizations like the WHO, but we don't work directly for them. But financial accountability, we we just finished an audit from the WHO about our work in Yemen. They're going over every last line of spending, which I think is great. It's exactly what they should be doing. Will you be applying for funding again to them? Yes, probably. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to end in a minute, but I'd like to go back to what prompted me to call you. What about Syria and Turkey? Why are you not there? They're two different disasters. Syria and Turkey, it's the same event, which was an earthquake. But Turkey may have done lots of things wrong, but they are close to the EU And they're one of those semi-advanced countries. If you combine the infrastructure that they already had in place with the fact that the EU is pouring in resources, they actually have medical teams that they need there. So there really wasn't a good fit for us in Turkey proper. Syria is a completely different story. We would love to get in there, but it also is perhaps one of the most dangerous places on the planet, particularly for an American team. So the security puzzle there maybe not solvable. We're looking into it, but you know, as managers, we're not going to send people into harm's way. Mm. We're willing to take risks and our volunteers are willing to take risks, but you know, it's got to be reasonable risk. We're not going to put people on a truck and send them over an unsecured border into a place that's held by five different militias, half of them answering directly to the Syrian regime. That's not responsible. It's tempting. The need there is just incredible. It's really hard to watch. And has been for so long anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's a disaster on top of a disaster for sure. Does that mean that NYC medics are not actually actively anywhere right now? Right now, we don't have boots on the ground anywhere. If I was going to make one plug, it would be for funding. And that's simply because preparation is everything. 
And so if a disaster strikes tomorrow and we start bringing in funding because there's very compelling images on the news, yes, we can use the money, but it's difficult to spend it responsibly. You want to spend money programmatically, well-planned over time, pre-positioning logistics and things like that. That makes your response when it happens much, much better. And we don't have the funding to do that. So we are often having to like book logistics, like send a pallet of <laughs> equipment and put it on credit cards. That's no way to operate. And so we're always on hunt for people who sort of understand the need for infrastructure building funds. To be ready, yeah. you've got to exactly. be ready. Exactly. That's what will help you've you. You've got to be, yeah. Yep. It would be great if somebody listening to this program could contact you. So again, just let's end, Steve, by how people can find out more or any other contact information. We have a portal just be forewarned. The vetting process is rather extensive as it should be. It takes a good bit to get onto one of our teams. And, and there's a hundred good reasons why that's the case. But there is a portal, a volunteer portal and an application process on our website and just information on all of our programs and the things that would go to the website, nycbetics.org. So thank you very much, Steve. I'm, well, I'm thank just, you for, yeah. for the audience. Thank you very much. You got to take care. You've been listening to Steve Muth talking about NYC Medics and their team's emergency response to international disasters. You can hear Tidings on the second Wednesday of the month at this time right here or whenever you like as podcasts on hazelkhan.com. To support my programs, Tidings and North Fork Works and all the wonderful WPKN interview programs, please make a donation at wpkn.org. Thank you. I'm Hazel Kahn.